A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Peter Hart. And today, I'm with Gary Bain. Well, there's no foreplay there, was there? It's like straight in. Straight in, yep. And what are we doing today, Gary? We're doing Jutland. The aftermath. <gasps> Just to sort of string it out a bit longer, really, eh? Yeah, well, we've got a bit of spare time, haven't we? <laughs> got a rest of the year to fill, Gary. <laughs> right, so where, where we got that? No, 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 no. We've done the bit where they'd snuck behind the, uh, the Grand Fleet, they got through the Light Forces, and the bulk of the High Seas Fleet sailed safely back into Arbor round about 1300 to 1445 on the afternoon of first. Well, obviously, the afternoon. What silly, Gary? Why did you put afternoon? Of the 1st of June. Yeah. Now, the worst No glorious 1st of June, Gary. The worst injured of all the German ships still left struggling back to harbour was undoubtedly the Seidlitz. Lucky Seidlitz, I think she was known as. Well, yeah. And she's an important ship. I mean, how long does it take to build a battlecruiser? Well, I don't bloody know. Well, about three years, I think, if you're starting from scratch. But it's only a few months to repair it. Uh, If only you could get back safely into harbour. Can't you repair them if they've sunk? (laughs) <laughs> no, is the short answer. Now, ignoring their physical and mental exhaustion, the crew of the Sadlitz thought, uh, fought desperately hard to save her. The once proud ship was literally in deep trouble. That's awful. <laughs> it is awful. Uh, yeah, uh, and the pictures. And we might even remember, to, <laughs> I don't suppose we will, might even remember to put a picture of her. But she looks more like a bloody submarine. Most of us seems to be underwater. It's um, Well, that's because during the battle... She'd been hit by no less than 21 heavy shells and one torpedo. And as a result, she lost 98 men killed and 55 injured and had had four main and two secondary armament guns put out of action. But the British had missed their opportunity and and the Sadlitz... She hadn't been sold. She'd returned to the fray. In less than four months... Four months, yeah. she was once more ready for action. And could she have returned to action if she'd been sunk? No, absolutely not. It's the point about yeah. three years to build a new one, several months, and she's back in action. Well, it's what Nelson realised as well uh, when, in, in his time. You, you basically, you, you, take, you destroy them or capture them. 
and 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 uh, if you don't, they come back at you again and again. Now, uh, so uh, so what did he do? What does Admiral Shear do when he gets back? Well, he weighed the early assessments of the British losses and he carefully counted his own. And he realised that they had plenty of firm grounds for claiming a German victory. Now, as the euphoria of his perceived triumph banished lingering fatigue... He must have been knackered, yeah. He ordered champagne to be served on the bridge of his flagship and he prepared to give his version of events to the world. Yeah, well, quite reasonably so. I mean, you've got to realise that, that we'll go through these the, 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 the sound reasons later. Well, what about the British, Gary? What, what, what's happened to them? And, well, and this is the next segment, really, isn't it? Well, several of the British ships have been left in a dire condition. Were they buggered? <laughs> technical term and it had left them acutely vulnerable as the weather gradually freshened and the waves tossed higher how right. many more are going to be in here <laughs> just written a song about that now the most immediate problems were faced by the destroyers who'd been damaged in the desperate close quarter uh, night actions which we described I think two podcasts yeah ago. Well, I mean when, once, the, once it's all died down the action the, the crews are dealing with fires they're, they're trying to and I think it's it's one of those things about sea warfare you're really in trouble with fire you're also really in trouble with that wet stuff uh, what's that called waves waves yeah watery stuff because uh, they, they flood in through the holes in the sides it might put the fire out but what might happen we might well sink. Yeah. Now, hundreds of miles of open seas lay between them and the sanctuary of the home port. Now, there's too many stories for us to tell. Let's, uh, should we pick a couple of exa- examples? What's your favourite, do you think? Well, aboard the destroyer Broke, raked first by German gunfire and then in collision with the Sparrowhawk, men gazed around them in stunned disbelief as daylight illuminated the extent of the horror that surrounded them. So you're going to tell us what tele- telegraphist uh, J- Josias Crode, HMS Broke, fourth flotilla, what he, what he saw that morning. When we could see, and I had time to think, it dawned on me what a terrible scene had been enacted. We thought of it as honour and glory, which so many people in their ignorant, ignorance say is attached to warfare. You should have seen the decks of HMS Broke at 4am, June 1st, 1916. There you would have seen an exhibition of honour and glory in reality. 48 of our crew lay dead, and most of them shattered beyond recognition. Another 40 were wounded very badly. We were about five hours finding all our dead chums, dragging, dragging them out of the wrecked mess decks and throwing their bodies over the side to be buried in the deep ocean. That was the honour and glory we had. It strikes you as being one gigantic murder. You wonder how men can have the audacity. For if we stop to think what we were going to do, we should never fight at all. So uh, uh, th- those are uh, emotional words, aren't they? Uh, and it's it's good to know that uh, the, the the survivors of HMS, the broke, did make it back to port. Uh, right, well, I'll pick one. I'll go for the Spitfire, HMS Spitfire. Uh, what had happened to her? Do you remember? Bet you don't. Uh, well, yeah, she'd uh, also been left with her bowels gaping open to the seas. Is that bad? It's not good, is it? When she had earlier rammed the Nassau. Now, immediately after the collision, her crew had swung into action in a desperate effort to stem the onrushing waters before it was too late. And you're going to tell us what First Lieutenant Athelstan Bush aboard HMS Spitfire of the 4th Flotilla says. 
Mess tables, collision mats and stores were used to try and fill up the gaping bow, but they were all washed in board again time after time as the wind and sea were now fast rising. By dawn, June 1st, the sea had risen a good deal and the wind was still freshening from the southwest. And about eight o'clock, we had to turn the ship head to sea and ease down. All storerooms, shell rooms and lower mess decks forward being flooded, we began to get very anxious whether the four-boiler room bulkhead would stand the strain. At dawn, the captain ordered a tot of rum to be served all round, and I must say that cheered up the men no end. (laughs) Sorry, even in this grim stuff, there's always a a line or two of humour, isn't there? Against all the odds, swim or sink. Oh, it's a bit premature. Oh, yeah. Now, against... (laughs) Sorry. Now, now we're probably going to have to explain that. Why, Gary? It's going to be the name of a forthcoming book of ours. It is. Now, against all the odds, they too pulled into Tyneside on the early morning of the 2nd of June. But, so that takes them a whole nother day to get back. Uh, and, and, and they have a strange momentum. We mentioned it in the last podcast, but can you remember what it was? Yeah, on board their uh, forecastle, they still had a... 20-foot-long steel armour plate, which, as you rightly say, was a memento of their head-on collision with the Nassau. Yeah, a bit of a sliver of steel, 20-foot-long. And it, it was uh, it was heavy, too, and it big, biuk, uh, Turkish expression. For now, of all the wounded large British ships, there's no doubt the armoured cruiser Warrior was in the worst shape. And you're going to tell us what Captain Vincent Mortino said. He was on the HMS Warrior. We had been hit at least 15 times by heavy projectiles, 11 inch or 12 inch, and about six times by smaller shells. Fires were raging so badly aft that it was impossible to get access to the engine room. The whole main deck was full of flame, smoke and gas from enemy shells. The upper deck was torn to pieces and every boat was damaged beyond repair. The masts still stood and so did the funnels, although the rigging had been shot away and there were many holes in both masts and funnels. But the most serious damage was that caused by an 11 or 12 inch projectile which struck us on the waterline on the port side, passed through the after-reserve coal bunker, crossed the upper part of the engine room and burst as it went through the middle line bulkhead, leaving most of its gas in the port engine room, while several large fragments of it were deflected downwards and saw a large hole in the double bottom at the after end of the starboard starboard engine room. You've got a double bottom. And it's starboard. <laughs> now, uh, yeah, boats all damaged. That sounds bad. Why, why would that be bad? Well... It sinks. Well, yeah, well, inevitably, in those circumstances, casualties were severe. There were nearly 100 killed and wounded sailors scattered all around the ship. Could be anywhere, couldn't they? Uh, Difficult to find. Now, uh, the warrior tries to get home. It's just chugging along at almost 0 miles an hour. Uh, And who do they fall in with? It's it's a bit of luck, this, because they fall in with the the seaplane carrier, the Engadine. Uh, And that that had also been told to bugger off home uh, independently. now, what happened? Well, the Engadine tried to tow the Warrior home. Now, the Warrior was a large ship of some 505 feet in length and 73 feet in the beam. She therefore dwarfed the Engadine. And you're going to tell us what an old favourite of ours, Lieutenant Graham Donald, Royal Naval Air Services, aboard HMS Engadine, said. 
Aye, I'll never forget the first pull of the wire. Keep in mind that the Ingadine displaced about 1,400 tons and the warrior was 14,900. With the water in her, she was probably... Not, well, probably. 19,000. So the very... Oh, God. The very first time... All that happened was a colossal shower of sparks, and she stopped dead. That was one of my worst ever. I'm quite proud of that. Well, to, to be fair, they're all of a similar standard. Yeah. A lot of people have commented on this. They've said, please, stop. Yes. At last, by dint of sheer perseverance, they overcame the forces of inertia and got the dead weight of the warrior slowly moving forward towards home. Is yeah, there going to be any comments yeah. about dead weight here? Oh, certainly not, Gary. Yeah, I, I respect checking. you and all that... Sailing me. Now, by morning, it had become apparent that the warrior was doomed as the sea slowly gained the upper Well, hand. I noticed a couple of hints in Captain Molteno's report. Uh, the, the holes in the double bottom, the hole through the, below the waterline, uh, smashing through all the middle things. I think there's a few clues there. So what happens? Well, eventually, the literal point of no return comes, and it's obvious that they'd now never get the warrior back to port. So this is what you uh, signaller Henry Ganderton, he's on the Engadine, says... Already heavy seas were breaking across the decks amidships, and it was plain that it was a matter of moments only when she would make her final plunge. There were 700 men on board, of whom many were wounded, and what had to be done must be done quickly. But would it be quick enough? Boats were out of the question, and in any case, it was unlikely that any of the warriors' boats were undamaged. This is, it's a dramatic scene. It's not always fighting that's dramatic, is it? Because this, you can imagine these two ships, the waves are getting rougher and higher. Uh, the, 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 all they could do, what, the only way the Engadine can help is to, is to come right alongside the waterlogged warrior. And uh, th- th- there is just one lucky feature, one one thing about the nature of the Engadine, uh, which I wouldn't have guessed, and I'd have, or, or rather I'd have forgotten. What was it? Well, the, the, it's a seaplane carrier, and it had been a cross-channel steamer in her peacetime years, before she'd been converted to play her part in the war. Now, one relic of this former incarnation was the thick rubbing strake that still surrounded her, to facilitate going alongside jetties. Now, this was to provide a vital buffer between the two ships. And this is signalman Reuben Poole, aboard HMS Warrior of the 1st Cruiser Squadron. With vicious bumping, the two ships were made fast. Captain Molteno had given the orders, close all watertight doors, batten down all hatches, prepare to abandon ship. As my work was finished on the bridge, I nipped down the hatchway to the mess deck for a few personal items, and in the light from the hatchway, I saw a worn-out sailor, oblivious to the danger, fast asleep in a hammock netting. Oh, I gave him a good shaking, saying, Come on, mate, abandoned ship should be sinking any minute now. I hope that, se- I hope that seaman heeded my warning. If not... He would be battened down. Wow, what a fate, battened down below decks in a sinking ship. The souvenirs I brought down from the bridge were one white ensign, one Union Jack, my pair of hand semaphore flags and binoculars. From the canteen, I salvaged one large carton of player cigarettes and one large carton of fried cream bars. Still available for sale today. Yeoman Parsons asked me to try and save his sewing machine as he had to stay on the bridge with the captain. I ignored his request. I just love that. You can. 
Well, he was too busy getting his uh, cigarettes and fries cream bars. Yeah, I think that's great. That lovely touch of pragmatism. Oh. As quickly as possible, the crew gathered on the deck. Everyone was aware that at any moment the warrior might sink, but their discipline held in what were severely trying circumstances. Yeah, the, the, how did the men get from one boat to another? Well, they had to jump for it. And what happens if you fell between the ships, Gary? Uh, well, it's not going to be good either way, is it? You're either going to drown or you're going to get crushed. Yeah, awful. Uh, and the men lump, jump, stumble across the gaps, and, and they're grabbed by the Engadine crew members. Uh, and then, who else might have trouble with this? Who might have special trouble getting between the ships? I think you're referring to the wounded. Yeah. Uh, because of the frenetic urgency of the situation, stretchers were simultaneously passed across from one ship to another along the entire side of the en Engadine. And all in all, 700 men were rescued from the uh, from the warrior. That's Who's fantastic, the, really. Isn't it, it is. Who was the last to leave? Uh, as tradition dictated, it was Captain Maltano. Yeah. I keep wondering, that reminds me of another name. That. Now, the main military value of the uh, obsolescent warrior undoubtedly lay in a large crew, as the loss of the ship herself didn't materially affect the strength of the Grand no, Fleet. No, because it was just obsolescent old rubbish, really. But the men, 750-odd men, or the 700 rescued, they're important. Uh, the, there was one ship that had been badly hit, one ship that stands out in our pantheon of British battleships. What was that, Gary? Well, the uh, Super Dreadnought War Spite was an entirely different matter. The loss of such a ship would... Still have been a calamity, even if every member of the crew was saved. Yeah, this is a—it's a military necessity. That uh, you know. now, after she turned the circle in between the fleets and been yes. pounded to buggery, uh, the, the, she was ordered home at all possible speed. It's a long way to go. Uh, no escort, uh, no accompanying ship to take off the crew, and uh, most of her lifeboats had, had been hauled, hadn't they? Yeah, and Surgeon Ellis found a moment to pop out on deck to see what was happening. He too was stunned by the change in the war spite's appearance, but his equanimity, equanimity, equanimity. and confidence gradually revived. And this is Sergeant Gordon Ellis aboard HMS Warspite of the 5th Battle Squadron. Only a few hours before, she'd been one of the cleanest and smartest-looking ships in the fleet. Her decks spotlessly white and her light grey paint freshly put on, only recently gleaming everywhere in the sunshine. Now her decks were filthy, littered with debris and in places torn up by shells. One of the quarter-deck ladders had been blown away. Her funnels had ragged holes in them. The small iron ladder on X turret had been bent, twisted and broken away from its lower support, whilst the side of the turrets was covered with marks from glancing hits. Her general appearance was in about as absolute a contrast to what it had been before as, as could be imagined. A ragged and dusty white ensign still flew from her ensign staff, Where else would it fly? Anyway. which had been struck once and broken, so that it was now much shorter and at the main masthead there was flying the Union Jack. The damage, fortunately, was on the whole more spectacular than real. She was afloat and, barring bad weather, perfectly seaworthy. Our steaming powers were unimpaired, and as soon as the damaged interior parts of the ship had been shored up and made secure, there seemed to be no reason why we should not proceed on our way back to port in perfect security. I can think of a reason why they might not get back to port in perfect security. What's that? That's a G. Yeah. Oh, well. Never mind. Well, she's by no means out of the woods, is she? The Germans knew where any British lame ducks would be heading, 
because they're going back to their bases. And Shearer therefore ordered his screen of U-boats still lurking outside Scarpa Flow. That was the original trap, wasn't it? And the Firth of Forth to try to inter- intercept any crippled ships returning to port. Ooh. Now, uh, so, so uh, the, 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 the war spot actually runs into uh, a group of uh, German submarines, uh, U-boats, and uh, she again proves to be a lucky ship. And you're going to be Sub-Lieutenant Gilbert Bickmore of HMS Warspot, soon as I pinch yours. What accent are you going to use? You've not practised this at all, have you? A German submarine fired two torpedoes at us. She had misjudged our speed and zigzag and had come up to attack right astern. So she only had our stern to aim at. She made a very good shot, the two torpedoes running up, one on each side of our quarter deck. I stood on the quarter deck and watched the one on the starboard side. It began to turn towards the ship and looked as if it was going to hit. But at the last moment, it reached the end of its run and sank. I breathed again. That's pretty close. That is, you know, because that, that torpedo might well have sunk her. But uh, equally lucky, it wasn't a coordinated So attack. there were more than one submarines, but they weren't coordinated, are you saying? No, the next U-boat was also out of position to have much of a chance of securing a hit and too close for its own comfort. Yeah, it might have been rammed. Yeah. Now, eventually, on the afternoon of 1st of June, the war spy entered into the Firth of Forth and her ordeal was brought to an end. Now, let's get back to the main uh, Grand Fleet. What are they doing on the morning of 1st of June? No glorious 1st of June for them, eh? No, it brought a cold, empty misery to the main body of the Grand Fleet. Ever since the signal from the Admiralty at 0400, they knew that there was no longer any doubt that the High Seas Fleet had made good their escape. Well, and also they're thinking about, hang on, where's uh, where's the indefatigable? Where, where's the Queen Mary? You know, uh, the, 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 where's the invincible? That, that Well, Angelico hadn't up until that point been aware of the losses, had he? No. Now, so they sail about. Sail about. Wandering. Just, just wandering, basically, around the battleground. Is it a battleground? What do you call a naval battleground? A battleground. All right. Uh, metaphorically trailing their coats, I've put. I think I know what I'm on about that. Thinking of the pub again. And and uh, looking for German stragglers. Very sensible, that. Uh, and uh, they're, they're part, it's all the debris they're going through. What are they doing? Well, they're looking about them for survivors, aren't they? Clearly, amongst the debris. It must have been awful. Now, overall, the vista that lay before them as they cruised around the area of the battle was grim. And uh, this is able seaman John Myers of HMS Monarch. We steamed over the scene of the action. We passed masses of floating wreckage, spars, ditty boxes, fragments of lifeboats and many bodies. After steaming about this gruesome locality, the scene of many triumphs and losses for many hours, we shaped course for home. Now, shortly after 11, the Grand Fleet turned to the northwest and made directly for Scarpa Flow. And at this point, we'll take a short break. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. For the ships that had suffered damage and casualties in the battle, there was a grim mixture of damage control, the collection of corpses and the care of the wounded. And you're going to tell us what Sub-Lieutenant Clifford Caslon aboard HMS Malaya of the 5th Battle Squadron says. Now, you may remember from an earlier episode, remember, Gary, that was hit very badly and a fire had swept through the six-inch battery. Uh, Caslon says this, We were employed in cleaning up the battery. The whole place was a shambles, with twisted steel everywhere, even after the debris was cleared up. And it was not put right until the ship was refitted. The nose of the shell, which dealt all this fearful destruction, was found embedded in a tin of biscuits in the canteen. It was mounted on a wooden base and kept on board as a relic. I wouldn't mind finding that in a junk shop, would you? Now, the wounded had by this time been collected and were under treatment. On the hard-hit ships, the sick bays were pitiful places of horror, where pain and suffering mingled with stoicism. And this is able seaman Victor Haywood aboard HMS Tiger. What a scene it was. It was very much like that painting of the Victory's cockpit, ill-lit with mutilated bodies everywhere. The few cots were full, all hammock places occupied. The remainder were lying on mess tables and on the hard steel lino-covered decks, pitiful wrecks of this terrible action. I stopped by the hammock of a seaman acquaintance of mine, lit a cigarette and put it between his lips. He'd lost both arms but seemed remarkably cheerful. Wow, that's uh, that's a chastener, isn't it? And uh, he probably died of shock. We don't know, do we? Now, many of the dead are still where they'd fall. Well, they've <laughs> been, been blasted. Uh, and uh, the task of collecting and identifying the corpses, that, that's going to need a stronger stomach than either of us. Uh, who, who would be given that sort of duty? 
Well, it was uh, part of the Reverend Bradley's duties and he went down the port side of the Tiger where he found bodies still strewn around the six-inch magazine. And this is Reverend Thomas Bradley aboard HMS Tiger. The side was terrible. There was a considerable amount of water. There, in all of this, mixed up with rubbish and debris, were bodies and bits of bodies. One had no heads, as far as I could see, nor legs. The left arm was gone, and the right lay near, with its hand hanging off. It was a mere trunk, quite naked, for the blast tore the clothes off. You could feel the little bits, pe- sorry, the little pieces of limbs under your feet as you walked ankle deep in water. It was quite dark, save for the torch we had. Later on, I got together a stretcher party to try and get the pieces away. But when they saw what they had to tackle, they slunk away. And I must admit, I was not sorry. That's horrible, isn't it? As they crossed the North Sea, heading back to Rosyth, Vice Admiral Sir David Beatty signalled to his battlecruiser fleet that all preparations should be made for a traditional burial at sea for the majority of the corpses. The macabre nature of this age-old ritual gave some of the younger members of the crew a shot. And once more, you're going to tell us what Reverend Thomas Bradley said. The bodies were got together and sewn up in a sackcloth, leaving their sea boots sticking out. They were then placed on the starboard superstructure. They had some difficulty in piecing together those who had been smashed up. In one or two cases, the sacking with the body inside was not more than two foot six inch long. Wow. Word came through later that they should be buried at 630 A row of mess tables were placed with one end over the starboard side of the quarterdeck and the bodies were laid two on each mess table. A six-inch shell was placed under their heels and tied onto their sea boots to ensure the bodies remained at the bottom. And uh, and it's just... uh, Can you imagine how depressing it was? Especially, as he says, if you're a young member of the crew. Indeed. And, I mean, many witnesses were, were affected by the overwhelming sadness of that moment. Yeah, and this is what Surgeon Lieutenant Duncan Lorimer, now he's on the Malaya, we know they had a lot of casualties, 5th Battle Squadron. He says, the ship had slowed down and there was a burial going on of the poor, unrecognisable scraps of humanity from the explosion. I'd been asked previously to try and identify Young and Cotton, but it was impossible. It was a gloomy scene, the grey sky, the grey sea, the stitched-up hammocks, the padre with his gown blowing in the the breeze. The last post was sounded by the marine buglers and our shipmates plunged into the sullen waters. And it's all a bit grim, isn't it? It is. At about 8.30 on the 2nd of June, the the battered battle cruisers sailed into the Firth of Forth. No matter how serious it is, your spoonerism system quite In an atmosphere of... I'm ignoring that. In an atmosphere of heightened emotion, there were understandably some harrowing scenes as the remaining casualties were brought out of the ships to the waiting hospital ships. Yes, and uh, I think we've had enough of that. So, uh, in a sense, we'll leave that. You can read that elsewhere it's just awful all of it at 11:30 the main body of the uh, fleet arrives on the, the on grand the, fleet the grand fleet yeah arrives back at scappa flow the main base they've not had a lot of casualties had they they've been minimal and their reception in the isolated anchorage was an understated affair which was in stark contrast to the dramatic scenes unfolding at Rosyth. Yes, because the battle cruise has been battered um, and the Grand Fleet hadn't, uh, except for the Marlborough, if you remember. Um, now, the Grand Fleet, how, what, what's, what state are they in? Well, their morale would survive the battle. The question was, 
How would the world and history come to view the battle that they just fought? And what advantage do the Germans have? Well, they got back into port first, and as a result, they capitalised heavily on that advantage in the war of words that followed what they called the Battle of Skagerrak. Skagerrak. From their perspective... They had indeed won a great victory. Yep, Sheer claimed uh, initially, at least, to have sunk three battle cruisers. Well, that's true. Uh, one super dreadnought. He, he, that, he thought the war spot was sunk. Yeah. Uh, two armoured cruisers. Yep. One light cru- two light cruisers. Sorry, and thirteen destroyers. Uh, and uh, what? What? <laughs> they're uh, that's not 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 that inaccurate, is it? No. Uh, but uh, they're not quite so forthcoming in their own losses, are they? No, at that point, the Germans cautiously only admitted to the loss of the uh, Pommern and the Wiesbaden, though allowing that the Frauenlob and some destroyers had not yet returned. Mm. They concealed the loss of the Lutzov, the Elbing and Rostock. Now, what? Uh, what? how do the German nation react to, uh, to, 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 to the news of this? Well, as one... They boil over with excitement and patriotic jubilation. Newspapers? Banner headlines. It screamed the news of victory from every street corner and soon the rest of the world was convinced that the Royal Navy had been soundly thrashed. Yeah, the the the, the Kaiser, what he, he gives honours and awards, a showered, showered Gary on the fleet, uh, uh, the crew of the fleet, or rather, unparalleled Gary. It, it uh, and it's pretty triumphalist, isn't it? But it's not feigned, um, in a sense. And this, you've got to look at it. The, the, the high seas fleet had done what? They'd sunk more fl- ships than they'd lost. They had conducted themselves with, well, I would say, determination in the face of great and danger. courage and courage. Yeah, uh, and their ships had proved themselves, their designers, that they could withstand. Almost anything the British could throw at them, particularly as the British shells weren't too great. And that's a... Now, from the other side of the North Sea, the perception of what soon became known as the Battle of Jutland was markedly different. Yeah. Um, to, to, well, to Jellica, to Beatty, the Admiralty, the, the, the men of the Royal Navy, and, oh... Above all, yeah. the civilian population at large... The Battle of Jutland is a distinct... Disappointment. They'd expected triumph, you know. Uh, and even before the Grand Fleet got back to Scapa Flow, the first rumours of defeat had begun to circulate. Um, now, uh, how did the Admiralty react? Well, being conscious that the Germans had already begun to peddle their version of the battle to the international press, they were keen to issue a statement. And uh, there's quite a lot wrong with this statement, in my view. Uh, they, they issue a communique... Uh, and and it it shows all the sides of having been written by some by some sort of committee, um, and it was also startlingly frank in comparison to the German uh, communique or news. Um, so 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 what was the reaction to this? Well, you've got to you've got to realise that this was the first real source of hard information for a country grasping, palpitating, for news. But in its determination to face up to some unpalatable facts, it listed the losses honestly, yet failed to put any sort of gloss on the events. Now, crucially, it failed to mention that the Grand Fleet had been left in control of the seas or that the Germans, to put it bluntly, 
had fled for their lives. Now that's a pretty bold statement. Uh, you can you can a- a- applaud their honesty if you like, but but that, that that's 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 a blunder not to mention those. Yeah, because uh, what do you think the press did? Oh, uh, I imagine they treated it uh, sensibly and and rest- with no, restraint. No, most of the new pa- newspapers simply took their lead from the tone of the Admiralty communique and passed on to their readers the sad news that their tag. Ah. The day they'd all yearned for it somehow ended in a German victory. So what the Admiralty do? Well, they think, oh, <clears throat> uh, perhaps we've got this a bit wrong, uh, and they uh, they haven't they haven't caught, they haven't uh, they haven't read the room, have they? No, and bolstered by further reports from Jellico, they tried to correct their defeatist tone in a second communique, which was issued on the 3rd of June. What did that do? Well, that sought to boost German losses, followed by a third statement on the 4th of June, (laughs) which grossly exaggerated them. You mean we told fibs? We did. The subsequent German confession on the 7th of June that they'd concealed the loss of the battlecruiser Lutzov and light cruiser Rostock in their first statements... That also helped to undermine the initial fears of outright German victory. So what's the sort of overall international, if you like, perception of the battle? I mean, does it stay that the Germans had won? No, it sort of slowly mutates to that of a qualified British success as it was realised that the British blockade endured unchallenged. And that, I'm afraid, is the point, isn't it? Uh, now, J- Jellico, uh, <coughs> he produces his Jutland dispatches on 6th of July. And by then, how do you think the, the great British populations... Um... Well, there's, four, there's very few doubts by then that uh, another victory had, in fact, been achieved. But the pell-mell press of events endemic in the Great War had, by then, done much to distract what? public oh, what attention. El- what else is going on? Well, on the 1st of July, the British had launched the Battle of the Somme, which I thought you might have known about. Never heard of it. You wrote a book about it. We've written a book about everything. Now, soon all else faded into near insignificance as the unparalleled casualty lists rolled from the newspaper presses. So it's like, it's like a, 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 you know, there's a bit of a, a press thing and then it just dies away and it's almost forgotten about for a while. It, yeah, it, because the next thing yeah. comes into view. Now, the overwhelming feeling in the battlecruiser fleet and Grand Fleet was one of frustration. At I their believe sailors suffer a lot from they that. They do. <laughs> was the frustration at their failure to achieve the kind of victory that they had expected. Wanted to tag. But they were not prejudiced in their confidence in ultimate victory. So that's what you meant or we meant when we said that the morale endured. They, they, were, they were all right. Um, they were all right. So what 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 so what does that mean? What, what well, if the German- in, in reality, the Grand Fleet was ready for action again by twenty one forty five, on the second of June. <sighs> well, yeah. when Jellico could deploy no less than twenty four intact dreadnoughts and battlecruisers ready for immediate action. Oh, and 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 the, the, this underlines the point. If if the Germans fancied their chances in the battle. What were we? What would? How do we feel? Well, well I they say had we. a mere ten available oh. to uh, Admiral Shear. We'll have them. Now the British ships receiving dockyard repairs rejoined the fleet by the end of July. The damaged ships of the high seas fleet trickled back, and Shear was able to consider renewed action by mid-August. Yeah, uh, is that all of the? What about the battle cruisers? No, the battle cruisers Seidlitz and Der Flinger took much longer to repair and were not released until towards the end of the year. 
Now, let's look at the uh, quick analysis, Gary. This is your strong point as ex-commercial director of Transport for London and Transport and TFL. Um, you're, you're good at analysing things, balance sheets, things like that. Any so, analysis of ships lost and of casualties sustained shows that the Germans did indeed have a good superficial oh, case Gary, for not, celebrating victory. Oh, You've got to accept that. I can't. In all, the British lost three battlecruisers, three armoured cruisers and eight destroyers. Oh. The Germans lost one battlecruiser, one pre-dreadnought, four light cruisers and five destroyers. You could say the Invincible and Indefatigable were a bit past their uh, sell-by date. Uh, I'm not sure yeah, about but that. Yeah, that can be a bit of an overstated qualification. I'm a bit surprised you made it, Pete. I don't know why I said that. Their sister ships continued to serve in the Grand Fleet until the end of the war. So when we say they're obsolescent, they're not... They're, they're not, not that obsolescent. They're not that obsolescent. And actually, they are only about 10 years old. Yeah, they're modern ships, aren't they? Compared the, to the ships we have now. The armoured cruisers were completely obsolescent. So that's uh, well, you, you're here referring to the Defence, the, um, uh, 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 the, the, the Black Prince and the Warrior. Yeah, and if anything, Jutland had exposed the folly of packing hundreds of trained young men into a ship that could neither fight nor flee. What a great idea that is. Yeah. Well, they didn't know when they were designing them. You know. Now, the Germans could point to the equal obsolescence of the Pomean. Yeah, so, I mean, what, what's source for the goose is source for the other goose. So, in terms of actual casualties... Oh, this is... This is now, this is, this is really bad. Uh, so, six, some 6,094 British sailors lost their lives. How many Germans? 2,551, which is, as you'll work out immediately, something like uh, uh, 3,500 less. Uh, I'd point out to you that that 6,094 British deaths uh, equates to the numbers lost in action in the Boer War, the whole of the Boer War. Oh, it's terrible. You've said it on a number of occasions. When things go wrong at, at sea, you don't get a blighty one, do you, generally? You die. So what uh, what causes most of our uh, casualties? Uh the explosive detonation of the three battlecruisers. Yeah, I mean, you could argue, had the German battlecruisers displayed any uh, an equivalent volatility, then the uh, picture would have been very different. Yeah, but it wasn't. And and we're, we're not really big into uh, imaginary games and what-ifs and whatevers. It, it is what it was. Oh. <laughs> it's, however, certain that although the British may not have won the Battle of Jutland, they certainly didn't lose it. Yeah, because in the end, the material successes of the high seas fleet just fade into complete insignificance compared to what? Well, it's the crushing strategic success of the British. The great question of naval warfare had been answered. Yeah, they're, they're not going to come out. They're not going to break the blockade. They're not going to stop British troops from coming. They're not going to challenge the Grand Fleet properly. They do emerge again. But when people say they never come out again, that's bollocks. They do come come out. out. Yeah, they do. But they never again seriously threaten to dispute the command of the seas with the Grand Fleet. I think that's true. Uh, uh, They they try and ambush them, I think, once or twice more. But, you know... Yeah, I mean, let's reiterate what their intention was at at Jutland. Their sole intention had been to isolate a small portion of the British fleet and by destroying it, allow a fleet action between relative equals to quickly follow. Well, they, do you know what? We said this in the uh, the run to the north when they nearly had the 5th Battle, uh, battle Squadron, the Super Dreadnoughts, 
that that was the moment, wasn't it, where they could have got what they wanted? Yeah, did they, they almost did, did they almost did, did they almost did they no. They failed. It's almost not the same as did. No, it's not. It's now, not, the British losses were painful, but quickly replaced. Yeah, I, I would say the British margin of superiority, superiority uh, it, it's just uh, undiminished, undi- for God's sake, undiminished. <laughs> I would extrapolate from the, ah, I said it right, extrapolate from these figures that, uh, that, 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 that they're, they're still in the same position as before the battle, aren't they? Um, so how do we, I mean, how do we analyse this? So, I mean, is this, what, 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 what would you say? Nothing. Well, I would say there's really no room for sentiment in analysing uh, this sort of naval battle of, of war. It's a brutal business, isn't it? Um, yeah, the mere fact of the brave German fight against the odds does not materially change the result unless the morale of the Grand Fleet had been destroyed in the process. And that was demonstrably not the case. Now, I think the German Navy, the, the German naval officers, the German crews, they're proud of their achievements at John. And we would endorse that. I think that they, they've got good reason to be proud of their achievements. Uh, but they also, uh, the more thoughtful ones, acknowledge the legitimacy of the British strategic victory. Strategic victory. Uh, and you're going to be an old favourite, Commander Georg von Haas. A SMS Derflinger of the uh, first scouting group. What does he say? The English fleet, by remaining a fleet in being, by its mere continued existence, had so far fully fulfilled its allotted task. The Battle of Skagarak did not relax the pressure exerted by the English fleet as a fleet in being for one minute. And that's the brutal truth. Brutal truth. I wish they wouldn't call it Skagarak, because I... Oh, Daisy... Davy D... Daisy... Skagarak. I'm to, too young. Oh, yeah. Now, Shear, he understood this only too well. He'd no intention of confronting the full strength of the Grand Fleet ever again. The High Seas Fleet did, though, as you mentioned, a, a re-emerge. And it's quite soon. Uh, it was 19th of August, 1916. And he, he, come out, he came out again and he tries his original, Shear tries his original Jutland plan. So remember that the original plan wasn't to interf- interfere with uh, the uh, the squadrons to the you know the, uh, the 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 ones to the north, it was to actually go and paste Sunderland, which we can all endorse. I think absolutely, and we should re- you know recommend that it's tried again, uh, and, and 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 lure the Grand Fleet into a, a, another submarine trap. It's it's the old plan. Uh, what advantage do the British have? Well, once more, they're uh, they're warned by Room Forty. But in the event, through a combination of Jellicoe's legitimately enhanced fears of running into a trap... Well, he was right. ...and a myriad of complicating factors... Which we're not dealing with because we're lazy. confrontation never took place, and the High Seas Fleet returned safely once more with nothing achieved. Now, Shear, when he gets back, he, he, he sees the fleet movements that are reported to, and he realised what? Well, they'd nearly been... Uh, he he, he realises they'd nearly been trapped by the entire Grand Fleet. Uh, what does that trigger? Well, he loses a lot of his enthusiasm for further surface adventures in the North Sea. What else could he do? Well, <laughs> I think you get back to submarine warfare, an unrestricted submarine warfare. Ooh, and you, this, you're going to say what, and this is testing your vocal skills to the utmost, you're going to say what Admiral Reinhard Scheer, who normally aboard the SMS Friedrich de Grosse, uh, 
what he says. In view of England's plan of campaign, there was no alternative but to inflict direct injury upon English commerce. We could not build a sufficiently great number of additional large ships to compensate for the inevitable losses which we were bound to suffer in the long run in a conflict with the numerically superior English fleet. We ought to have tried earlier what the result of a victory by our fleet would be. It was a mistake on the part of the naval leaders not to do so. It's interesting he doesn't consider himself one of naval leaders. No, no, he means in 14 and 15 when it was very... Na- the gap was... Remember in 14 when they had to send the battlecruisers off to deal with Von Spey? It, it was tight then. And it might, it might have worked, but we will we'll never know. And Shears obviously looking back and blaming Ingenell and Von Pohl because I can tell that you couldn't remember... Who I couldn't remember their names. No. <laughs> now, henceforth, he advocated unrestricted submarine warfare as the naval panacea to the parlous strategic situation that entwined Germany. How many words can you get in one sentence to try to trip me up? That was a pretty good one. And you, you passed it with flying colours. 6th of October, the German naval staff announced a resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare. Uh, and uh, it... it the, the, the high sea fleet, does it come out again? Briefly, on the 18th of October. But by then, they'd lost the capacity to lay Why? submarine traps. Why? Because the submarines are off commerce rating. Yeah. Yeah. The Grand Fleet remained aloof in harbour. We're not playing. And the high seas fleet returned to harbour with nothing achieved. And that was to be the last time they emerged until 1918. And that's, so therefore, I could quite see that they never really seek action properly. Uh uh, so, uh, what about the morale of the German fleet? Actually, we t- talked about the morale of the uh, British fleet. What about the, the Royal Navy? What about the morale within the uh, the High Seas Fleet? Well, it had briefly blossomed and surged, even, after the perceived German victory at Jutland. But it soon leached away as they realised that, for them, Der Tag would never dawn. Yeah, and uh, when, when the war staggers to a close, two long, painful years later... The, the high sea fleet would mutiny rather than emerge to fight a last futile battle. I mean, that was just madness to try and send them off. And the other thing that I ought to mention is that uh, the uh, what 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 affected uh, unrestricted submarine warfare have? It's not in the notes. No, no, it brought America into the war. Yeah, and sixth of April. So that you know you can't do wrong for doing right. You do the only thing you can do, and that triggers. A land disaster, and also, by the way, the American fleet joins the Royal Navy, and it's even more strong. I should point out, there's lots of things that are not in the notes. Yeah, sausages. Now, the ultimate triumph of the Royal Navy was reflected in the humiliating surrender of the seventy ships of the High Seas Fleet on the twenty first of November, nineteen eighteen. That's a big day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, uh, well, let's. What else can we talk about? Uh, I think we should chat about the relative abilities of uh, Jellicoe and Beatty. Mm. Uh, in the exercise of their commands during the Battle of Jutland. Uh, well, yeah. What, well, it's what? been blurred, hasn't it, by Beatty's behaviour in the post-war years when he abused his position to, to defend himself, which is understandable, but to blacken indirectly the names of both Jellicoe and Evan Thomas. Yeah, the 5th Battle Squadron commander, the uh, Hugh Evan Thomas. I mean, uh, Beatty behaves like an arse after the war. Uh, he becomes, uh, uh, when he becomes First Lord of the Admiralty, when, yeah, when he's Commander-in-Chief of the British Fleet, he, he, he behaves badly. Yeah, and ironically, it's the, a sense of ling- lingering injustice which is inspired by this ignoble behaviour, which has caused many historians to take Jellicoe's side 
more vehemently perhaps in the Jutland controversy than might otherwise have been the case. I think I would count myself as one of them. Uh, I think I co- I've, I've come down heavier than on Beatty in my Jutland book than perhaps I should have done. Guilt. Well, maybe, but Beatty's post-war conduct shouldn't really affect our judgment and no. his competence. You've got to look at it in the light Are of you day. telling me off? I am. Now, in theory, Beatty certainly possessed many of the right instincts for a fight in Admiral. Uh, let's go through them. Uh, he applauds the idea of decentralisation of command and he encourages initiative in his subordinates. Do you think Jellicoe does that? Well, no, he does the opposite, doesn't he? Now, yeah. uh, Beatty did not lack the courage to take big decisions in moments of crisis and he rarely did anything but close the enemy. Get closer yeah, in fighting Admiral. Yeah. Now, well, let's, so what about Jellicoe? Well, we'd probably call him a natural centraliser, wouldn't we? Bit of a technocrat. Yeah, with a mind like a slide rule and thought processes that travelled oh, smoothly oh. along the grooves of cold logic. That's awful. Yeah. Um, what overwhelms is, if you like, his martial instincts. Well, it's that blanket of caution, isn't it? He Why? Why, Gary? Well, he couldn't or he wouldn't risk the grand fleet and the future of his country on the lottery of being able to successfully evade a mass destroyer torpedo attack carried out in bad visibility. Yeah, and, and we, we emphasise time and time again that he's right. He is right, and uh, the Royal Navy that fought the Second World War was clearly built on the principles that uh, Beatty had been uh, led yeah, to. Yeah, but it's different. It's, different. it's a different time, isn't it, Gary? And a different place sometimes. Yeah. It's the Mediterranean, a lot of it. Yeah. Now, in a sense, Beatty could therefore be seen as the future, while Jellicoe represented the uh, the moors of the technocrats of the Edwardian navy that had swept away the crusty cobwebs of Victoriana. This is really exciting stuff, this. Well, now, now, right, so it looks like we're coming down on Beatty's side. I can't... Well, Believe yeah, it. but it's more complex than that, isn't well, it? Well, let's have some of the uh, counter because because uh, uh, all this beat is the future is to me bollocks. Well, um, Jellico may have been armstrong by natural caution, but his country had good reason to be grateful for his cool detachment. Yes, and this is this is I, I'm really going to kick some shit now. Uh, when a crucial moment comes, uh, despite the lack of sighting reports from his subordinates, including bloody Beatty. He makes the perfect decision on to deploy the, the, the Grand Fleet. You remember what it was? Yeah, he crossed the Germans' T. The most, most desirable of naval manoeuvres. Every sailor likes to have his T crossed. He did it not once, but twice. Yeah. Uh, he did make mistakes, but I think, you know, with the visibility as it was, with the confusion, with a lack of bloody reports, um, but... It, it it was a confused battle. I don't think you could avoid mistakes, do you? No, endless efforts to replay the action with the visibility restrictions and paucity of information endured by Jellicoe have not uncovered any certain or safe route to a clear-cut victory at Jutland. It's almost impossible to achieve a clear-cut victory at Yeah, Jutland. I mean, most radical solutions proffered to the myriad problems that he faced involve a substantial leaps of faith and a large amount of luck. Yeah, in other words, you're risking everything on, on, on a throw of the dice. That That's not Jellicoe's way. And it's right that... It, what did Churchill say about Jellicoe? Who is he? He said, that 
Yeah, you did say that. He also said he was the only man who could lose, lose the war them. in he an afternoon. That, yes. And and I think, in the end, Jellicoe does well, but he's thwarted by poor visibility and his own tired decision, tired, to disregard the signal intelligence, the faulty signal intelligence received from the Admiralty during the night. But even then, he might not have. I mean, the... What about the visibility next morning on the first yeah, team? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatevs, you I know. I mean, in contrast, although Beatty performed with great gallantry at Chatland, <laughs> he made a succession of mistakes. By far the most serious was his first. He'd not concentrated his force, but he'd gone into action half-cocked, leaving the most powerful ships in the world lagging miles behind. The 5th Battle Squadron and the Super Dreadnoughts. So who now cares about the rights and wrongs of petty signalling disputes? Well, that's the thing, because, that, that I mean, all, all his excuses are that somebody messed up the signals. Well, who's responsible for the signalling skills within his squadron? He is. And Beatty had the ultimate responsibility to concentrate his forces before going into action. His men aboard the Indefatigable and Queen Mary paid the ultimate price for his failure. Yeah, I think they might well. Let's not say that they could have been saved. We don't know where the no, shells were. they might have been were. killed in any event. Yeah, yeah, but but they'd have been joined. If if those fifth battle squadron had been at the end of the British battlecruiser line, surely they'd have been the, the British sailors would have been joined in their watery graves by a lot of men from which ships. The Lutzov, Derflinger, Seidlitz, Molka and Von der Tan. They'd have been very vulnerable to those 15-inch shells. Um, does BT perform well in the rest of the battle? Well, he does make other less important mistakes throughout, particularly in the confusion when the high seas fleet suddenly hove into sight and in his failure to pass on proper intelligence of their position while Jellicoe was trying to deploy the Grand Fleet. Yeah, I think BT does not perform at the level that would match his own inflated self-image. No, he didn't act with uh, conspicuous success when he used his his initiative. And despite his lip service to decentralisation uh, and passing on initiative, he himself didn't allow such an expression in his own subordinates whenever it came to the crunch. Yeah, I think, you you know, you put your finger on it, as speaking as a captain of industry as you were, he's, he's just as bloody bossy booty yeah, his, his signals were as rigidly rigidly interventionist as Jellicoe's when it came to delegation of powers in actual battle. Sum it up then, Gary. We're using your forensic summing up skills. Well, in our judgment, oh, and I'm, I'm oh, are you including you in this, Jellicoe was a brilliant man, saddled by a poor system of command and control in conditions of appalling visibility. But... He cannot escape responsibility for the failures in the command structure and night fighting techniques endemic within the Grand Fleet, as he'd been its commander-in-chief for almost two years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But his natural calmness, his intelligence and clear thinking allowed him, in my view and your view and our view, to transcend these handicaps to safely achieve his overriding aim, which was to retain command of the world's oceans beyond the narrow confines of the North Sea. Now, Beatty may have had an idea of what was required to, to grasp a complete naval victory, but he didn't have, oops, the application or the brilliance to achieve it at the moments when it mattered during the battle. In other words, he, had, he, he could talk a good fight, but when it came to the crunch, he didn't do very well. Now, taking this right back to one of our early 
podcast in this series. In How the many first, years ago was that? First one. The followers of the American historian Alfred Mann forgot that their earnest desire for a Nelsonic figure to lead the, the Grand Fleet to a new Trafalgar could not be achieved in the real world. Yep, Nelson, he was a unique figure at a unique point of time when you could guarantee the destruction of of, of the wooden walls of France and Spain because they couldn't fire as fast as we could. Uh, but it, in the First World War, is it fair to expect either Belli- Beatty or Jellicoe to match that? I don't of think course not, no. Now, perversely, as a direct result of the vigorous post-Jutland controversy, it's the fate of Jellicoe and Beatty to be locked together in a kind of historical purgatory for all time. Is that like uh, the purgatory that our listeners You and I. <laughs> yeah. Now, endlessly <laughs> being oh, analysed... <laughs> you and I, that's a better analogy. Yeah. Now, endlessly being analysed by naval historians. Both men, whatever their faults deserve a better memorial to their courage and devotion to duty. I think we've just said that they deserve a better memorial than being remembered by us. Well, everybody needs a better memorial than being remembered by us. Now, if you've enjoyed this series on uh, Jutland, we've really enjoyed doing it. And we get a sense that, that listening figures are up. People have enjoyed it. If you want to read more about it, what would you suggest they do? I suggest they read a book by you and a chap called Nigel Steele called Jutland. Yeah. Something about the watery grey waves or something. Grey waves or something like that. Never again will I take the piss out of publishers by making up a funny title. Uh, I never got a chance to change it. All right, Gary, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure to, to be with you, Pete. Now, just with at this point, remind our readers, uh, readers, uh, our listeners, that if you like what you hear, if you like what you see, then you might like Laugh or Cry, which uh, is available from Amazon and all good online uh, retailers of books uh, for a very fair price of anywhere between... 10 and 100 pounds. Something there. And the other thing is, uh, do remember to follow us on social media. We are about on uh, on Facebook as Pete and Gary's Military History, and we're about on uh, Twitter. We are. We are. We might even get round to TikTok at some point. Bugger. Bugger TikTok. Cheers, Pete. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content.
You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?